Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., an unfucking insane level member of the show. And today's episode is brought to you by unfucking pro Mikel B. Though we may never know who he is behind that mask of his, thank goodness he's there when a crisis befalls us. Welcome back to Unfucking the Republic. Here's what you need to know fast and furious before we get rolling today. Ready? Ready. And go. <gasps> this is a podcast about socioeconomics and politics. Mostly, we don't get any of our content. Every podcast is free and available on all platforms. No bonus, nothing, anytime, anywhere. Even our essays are free on Substack at unftr.substack.com. Sign up to get them in your inbox every week upon release. The show is supported in two ways. One, by unfuckers who take out memberships or send one-time donations through buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Or by purchasing our native roasted coffee manufactured in partnership with the Uncachog Nation members on the Puspatuck Reservation in New York. In everything we do, we proudly support the indigenous community of the world. I'm your show host, Max. The show is produced by the all-powerful and brilliant 99. It's expertly arranged and edited by Manny Faces, the greatest engineer on the planet. Listeners with auditory processing issues can find a link to the music list drop on the feed and show notes. At the end of every show, we respond to listener feedback, call out books and other podcasts we love, solve the problems of the world. Essay subscribers are subfuckers. Up north, we honor our uncanuckers. Down below, we have our down under fuckers. And across the pond, we have a cadre of eurofuckers. Listeners from David Pakman are packfuckers. From best of the left, we have bottle fuckers. Pitchfork economics listeners are pitch fuckers and our young Turks followers are Turk fuckers. Collectively, we are the unfuckers. We are loud. We are kind. We are progressive. And we are here to fuck shit up with love. Whew. How'd I do? Not bad, Max. Not bad at all. Now let's get on with it. You got it. Unfuckers, we're going to wander a bit today. I hope that's okay. Last week, we talked about progressivism and highlighted three congressional figures that, to me at least, embody the principles of the movement today. Pramila Jayapal, Ro Khanna, and Ayanna Presley. But this version of progressivism isn't necessarily a philosophy on its own. It's more of a perspective within the current economic and social system of the United States. Progressivism means different things based upon the framework within which it exists. So today, we're talking about isms. Every one of the isms in this show deserves its own unfucking, and I'm sure over time we'll get there. For example, we already did a full show on capitalism, and even then we only scratched the surface to show how far removed we are from the original tenets of Adam Smith's philosophy. The same holds true for our understanding of many of the isms we'll run through today. Plus, I know unfuckers feel me on this one. Hearing the pundit class butcher the meaning behind economic and social theories is really, really frustrating. Then again, it's understandable that they're rarely corrected because most of us are also pretty far removed from their meanings. But hearing Ben Shapiro talk about socialism kind of makes me throw up in my mouth, as much as reading anything by David Brooks or Thomas Friedman for that matter. Capitalism is good because capitalism is freedom. Socialism is bad because socialism is tyranny. Not it's an aspect of tyranny. Socialism itself is tyranny. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. Now, the goal for today is not to provide a university-level analysis of the most important social and economic systems in modern history. That would be silly. What I hope to accomplish more than anything is to revel together in the language and nuance of political science. First, we must basically submit that there are no absolutes, and we should be wary of anyone who attempts to speak in absolute terms about the social sciences. This is art and science mixed together and influenced by politics, culture, technology, and religion. Add climate to the equation, and things get even more complicated. So understanding that this is an impossible task, here's where I landed in terms of an approach. First of all, we're examining the modern systems of the so-called developed world. By modern, I mean post-enlightenment, and by developed, I mean mostly Western industrialized nations, and to an extent Russia and China. 
so we won't be touching on feudal, mercantile, or monarchical systems as an example. Second, we'll touch on some of the influential origins of these newly developed theories, most specifically the French, Russian, and American revolutions. Then we'll highlight some of the more consequential thinkers and place them in context of the times in which they wrote and the prevailing structures of influence. And as we go through them one by one, we'll try to point out where our understanding of each one has strayed from the original intent. Obviously, there's more than one rabbit hole to jump down. Subisms, if you will, like anarcho-capitalism, collectivism, despotism, and such. But we're going to remain focused on a couple of big ones. We'll hit fascism, Marxism, socialism, and communism, which are related but not the same, and do a quick review of capitalism. I'm going to avoid pulling other threads like democratic socialism, neoliberalism, and libertarianism in the interest of time, and because I think they each deserve their own unfucking in the future. And my buddy Dan wanted me to touch on stupidism, but I'm not sure we have that kind of time together. We'll tie this up as neatly as we can toward the end to prove that while it's valuable to study such isms and know your history, our goal shouldn't be to identify with one more than another, but to break free of them altogether. Even leaving a shit ton of isms and information on the table, this is clearly ambitious. But if we do this right, the next time you're at a social function and someone says something stupid like, Democrats are turning this into a socialist country, Trump's a fascist, or Bernie wants communism, you'll be able to give them a hearty Oscar from the office, actually, and then explain why and how they're stupid and beneath you. Way to meet people where they are, Max. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs He started a podcast Another basic white guy He started a podcast But it's fun because he curses All through the podcast On fucking the I do think that as long as you continue looking at things through that old patriarchal Cartesian-Atonian lens, you're going to miss out on what the world really is. You, we, all of us, we, we need a new vision of the world and we need a more comprehensive, more inclusive science to support us. Original unfuckers might recognize a portion of this clip from the movie Mindwalk. I used it in the first introduction for the show when we launched. This movie came out in 1990, the year that I headed off to college. It had a profound effect on me as I entered my studies, though admittedly my pursuit of some other earthly pleasures that college had to offer put these revelations on ice for a while. I know what I mean, know what I mean, notch, notch, know what I mean, say no more. But the movie posits the central question that has haunted human existence since the creation of organized civilization. Is there a natural order to the world that aligns social, political, environmental, and economic structures in such a way that it produces a balanced and healthy outcome for all? Spoiler alert, we are not going to answer that question. The purpose of this episode is to run through the prevailing post-enlightenment political theories that influence modern systems of government. I also wanted to challenge my own biases as well, because as we discussed in show notes last week, there is a danger in absolutes. Even the greatest texts of all time produce multiple outcomes and opinions depending on one's cultural lens, prevailing economic conditions, and current political winds. No matter how objective I might attempt to be in approaching this or any unfucking episode, every word carries bias, whether consciously or unconsciously.
I suppose the first concept to unpack is to explain what we mean by isms. Oftentimes, when we come in contact with the isms we're exploring today, they're used in broad strokes to describe multiple things. For example, we talk about America as a capitalist nation. We've been taught to believe that anything that restricts capitalism, which we sometimes conflate with freedom, is communist in nature. And that if we give anything to anyone, we're practicing socialism. And if a leader has a strong opinion or a heavy hand, he or she is a fascist. We cherish the freedoms that come with democracy, but are democratic nations the only ones with freedom? How do you even define freedom? Can you have a free market system without democracy? Was Karl Marx a communist or a socialist? What's the difference between communism and socialism for that matter? Is it okay for a libertarian to accept social security and Medicare? Does the natural order produce one system or another, or do these systems produce a natural order? To really complicate matters, isms themselves are different in nature, but sometimes cross multiple states economic, social, political. Americans have a tendency to describe capitalism, for example, as all three, but it's not a political structure. On the whole, it's an economic framework that supports a particular social structure, and it works best in theory, as far as we know, within a democratic framework, but they aren't the same thing. Let's pull back for a second now and frame our discussion today in current American terms. That's perhaps the best way to visualize the complexities of competing isms and demonstrate how impractical it is to paint with a single color. America is a constitutional republic with democratic elections and social welfare protections for many of its citizens. It has an economy modeled on capitalism, infused with socialist programs and policies frequently guided by corporate interests. Now, as I've mentioned on the show before, this unique blend was coined inverted totalitarianism by political theorist Sheldon Wallen. In his words, quote, one cannot point to any national institution that can accurately be described as democratic, surely not in the highly managed, money-saturated elections, the lobby-infested Congress, the imperial presidency, the class-biased judicial and penal system, or least of all, the media, end quote. So Chris Edges, who you know I love, described inverted totalitarianism by saying, quote, Inverted totalitarianism is different from classical forms of totalitarianism. It does not find its expression in a demagogue or charismatic leader, but in the faceless anonymity of the corporate state. Our inverted totalitarianism pays outward fealty to the facade of electoral politics, the Constitution, civil liberties, freedom of the press, the independence of the judiciary, and the iconography, traditions, and language of American patriotism. But it has effectively seized all of the mechanisms of power to render the citizen impotent. So in this passage, Hedges is giving voice to the frustration each of us feels in not being able to affect change. That kind of hopelessness that's expressed through low voter turnout. Phrases such as, but what can I do about it? Or, it is what it is. Hey, which reminds me, fuck you, Melania. How free can we be as a nation if we feel imprisoned by our institutions and powerless to do anything about it? He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. Illustrating the American political system in this way helps highlight, to me at least, how dicey it can be to ascribe a particular theory to any nation, government, or philosophy. You don't hear Rachel Maddow or Fucker Carlson debating the merits of inverted totalitarianism. 
But when you read how Wolin describes the United States, it certainly seems like they should. So back to fascism as our first major ism to unpack. Because this word was so loosely thrown around during the Trump years, it's as good a starting point as any, though we won't spend a lot of time on it. Fascism is a purely political construct that has enormous influence over both economic and social structures, but it is strictly political nonetheless. I can just as easily argue that Donald Trump had fascist tendencies as I can that Barack Obama did, but neither would be considered a true fascist as they didn't rule a fascist regime. Donald Trump tried to legislate almost exclusively through executive order and attempted to overthrow the government in his waning days, and those certainly are fascist tendencies. But likewise, Barack Obama, too, legislated frequently through executive order when deliberately stymied by the legislative process and murdered tens of thousands of people abroad through drone strikes that were self-authorized without congressional approval or oversight. Fun, right? The etymology of fascism has its roots in Roman times from the word fasces, not to be confused with feces, the stuff that drips from Donald Trump's pie hole. Fasces is defined as a bundle of rods with a projecting axe blade, a symbol of power carried by a lictor in ancient Rome. Lictor? I hardly even knew her. Very good. As a political party and system, it was popularized by Benito Mussolini in 1919, at the end of World War I. The essential doctrine of fascism is to consolidate all power under the authoritarian rule of a single leader from whom all policies would be disseminated. The term is often expanded to include racial power as well, as demonstrated by Adolf Hitler, but it doesn't necessarily have to. However, it is more often a characteristic than not because the idea of consolidation requires complete assimilation of ideas to which race and culture can certainly contribute. Though I find some of his later work problematic and his theories increasingly erratic toward the end of his life, much of Christopher Hitchens' work continues to be unmatched in erudition in the modern era. So I'll give the man his due and let his words do the work to elucidate the characteristics of a fascist regime. Um, a fanatical idea of mass mobilization, um, a cult of the leader, um, a cult of death, fortunately in some ways because it's self-destructive, which is also true of fascism. It's irrational, in other yeah. words, as well as uh, extremely violent. And a cult of a worship of violence, for its own sake. An irrational cult of violence and death mass mobilization around the cult of a leader, this brilliantly sums up the tenets of fascism that tell the story of the most fascist regimes in the modern era. The complete centralization of power, restricting all forms of speech, movement, economic production, and mobility, and extreme militarization are hallmarks of this ism. It's why I can comfortably say that Donald Trump, for example, had fascist tendencies, but he lacked the acumen wherewithal and economic circumstances that typically give rise to a fascist leader. Oh, well... There's our stupidism example. Anyway, ultimately, the constraints of our republic kept him from seizing total power, but there can be little doubt that given the opportunity, this is how he would have preferred to rule. The closest approximation of this today would have to be North Korea. Cult of a leader, mass mobilization around a centralized authority, a cult of death, complete control of economic, political, and social order, restricted movement and speech, and extreme militarism. American politicians were keen to paint Castro in Cuba and Hugo Chavez in Venezuela as fascist dictators. I think that this is partially fair and more so in Cuba than Venezuela under Chavez. But the key difference to me is that these Latin American dictatorships utilized fascism as a means to a socialist outcome, while fascism was the endgame to authoritarians such as Mussolini. 
So as we move to the triad of doom for conservatives, Marxism, socialism, and communism, it's a good time to visit the granddaddy of all theorists, Karl Marx. Settle in on fuckers, because we're going deep on old Karl. You promised me, you said you would, you gotta give in, so I'll... Karl Marx is often portrayed as a revolutionary. It's a characterization that I'm not all that comfortable with. His ideas were revolutionary and have endured as such, but I think the better framing of the man is as a philosopher, economist, and sociologist, in much the way that Adam Smith is remembered. Marx was born in 1818 in what is modern-day Germany. He was born into an educated, middle-class family and loved to fucking party in his younger days. He fell in love with Jenny von Westphalen, herself a brilliant critic and activist with whom he had seven children. Marx went on to receive a doctorate in philosophy and tried his hand first at journalism, but his writings would get him thrown out of almost every newsroom and even every country. During his life, he would live in Prussia, now Germany, France, and eventually England, where he collaborated closely with his old friend, Freddie Engels. But Marx would die penniless and very much alone. He didn't overthrow any governments, didn't murder millions. He partied, thought, wrote, and challenged the entire world with his mind. We'll draw directly from Marx and others as we move through the next sections. And there's one modern theorist that I'm going to draw from in particular to contextualize Marx. His name is Joseph Schumpeter. Of course, I'll be relying on Dear Uncle Gnome as well. Like I said, it's important to recognize one's biases. So Schumpeter was an Austrian economist who lived from 1883 to 1950 and wrote a masterpiece called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy between 1939 and 1942, with the final edition appearing in 1950. Schumpeter is far from a household name and most often recognized as the economist who coined the term creative destruction which holds that the cycle of growth and progress of a process necessitates its own destruction. For anyone interested in what we're covering today, I cannot recommend this book enough, though I confess it can be a fucker to get through at times. But what's cool is once you tune your ear to his words and his language, he's actually kind of funny. Yeah, I think we have very different definitions of funny. Yeah, I'll take that. That's totally fair. Now, I mentioned briefly in the beginning that it was important to place ideologies and their theorists themselves in a revolutionary context. It's hard to appreciate the massive upheaval that occurred during the Enlightenment period that gave rise to the theories that prevail to this day. The American Revolution was extremely consequential in that it had European nations straining to view what was happening across the ocean. The French Revolution, as if in response to the New World's sudden independence, though that might be the most reductive thing I've ever said, truly sent shockwaves through the Western world. France would remain in a revolutionary state for the next hundred years, with the revolution of 1789 being litigated throughout in terms of its legacy and effectiveness at setting the working class free. And the Russian Revolution would color the political climate for the balance of the 20th century. Many of the theorists whose fingerprints are all over our republic even today came from the earliest revolutionary period in America and France. Thomas Paine, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Edmund Burke who inherited their foundation from Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Adam Smith and Francois Quenet would influence David Ricardo, and Karl Marx would benefit from each who had come before to author some of the most influential treatises on economics, society, and governance ever recorded. The time that Marx was most productive is also important to his legacy. 
He was able to witness the political results of the revolutionary periods in Europe and the New World, the birth of the industrial era and international commerce, and the fragile systems that held them all together. And when Marx was writing the Communist Manifesto with his dear friend and collaborator Engels, every nation in Europe, with the exception of Britain, was experiencing some degree of revolutionary upheaval. Imagine America in 1968, but everywhere in the known world. It was an explosive time, to say the least. The years between the release of the Communist Manifesto and the publication of their brilliant follow-up, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, marks the height of Marx and Engels' collaboration, though it would take time for these works to impact the world in the way that the Wealth of Nations did, for example. For our purposes, I'll draw more from the Communist Manifesto than The 18th Brumaire or even Das Kapital. The Manifesto is more philosophical and more clearly demonstrates Marx's literary flair. Das Kapital is a staggering work of economic genius, and the 18th Brumaire is basically a massive fucking hit piece on Louis Bonaparte and the bourgeois class as a whole, and it's less didactic for our exercise here today. One thing that is constantly overlooked, and is contrary to the lazy beliefs of today's pundit class, is that Marx saw the good that capitalism delivered. Here's how Schumpeter put it. Quote, Marx was personally much too civilized to fall in with those vulgar professors of socialism who do not recognize a temple when they see it. In this respect, no better testimony to his broad-mindedness can be offered than the Communist Manifesto, which is an account nothing short of glowing of the achievements of capitalism. And even in pronouncing pro futuro death sentence on it, he never failed to recognize its historical necessity." End quote. So Marx wasn't critical of capitalism as an economic system in terms of its ability to generate surplus production and innovation. He was more critical of quote, the need of a constantly expanding market for its products, end quote. That's from the manifesto. The need to constantly expand and to pillage new parts of the world in the name of profit was not as offensive to Marx as it was dangerous and wasteful. He further recognized that this constant demand for more created periods of overproduction, the overheating of economies we now associate with boom and bust cycles. Quoting from the manifesto directly again, he said, quote, in these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that in all earlier epochs would have seemed an absurdity. The epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of monetary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation had cut off the supply of every means of substance. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce, end quote. Hey, Max, getting kind of heavy. We should give people a break. That's a good idea. Hey, you guys thinking what I'm thinking? Oh, yeah. Are you ready to tone? Well, let's warm up those muscles. Grapevine over here and touch. Give me some snacks. Come on, make it snappy. Give me some energy. I'm here for you. Oh, yeah. Woo. That was great. Man. Right yeah. on. Yeah. Ah, such a good workout. Anyway. You know, it's hard to overstate how revolutionary and unique this concept was at the time and how it holds true to this day. Marx was commenting on a system so fucking preposterous that it can undo itself by being too successful. So, for example, a nation state could produce so much food that its economy collapses and its people go hungry. So when you put it in these terms and apply it through today's lens, it's hard to argue against how fucked up this is. 
So Marx wasn't doubting capitalism's ability to create, to build, to innovate. In fact, he admitted that these were definitely positive outcomes of capitalism. His problem was that these conditions continually placed the proletariat in a precarious position, owning none of the means, possessing none of the property, and little of the capital except in the form of wages. And the only way to push through the inevitable bust cycles was by, quote, on the one hand, by enforced destruction of a mass of productive forces, on the other, by the conquest of new markets, and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones, end quote. So it's a vicious cycle that prevents the lower classes from acquiring physical capital and the means to grow wealth, one that requires subjugation of an entire class of people. So we recognize this today through the language of you know inequality or things like capitalism left to its own devices will ultimately cave in on itself. This is sort of a paraphrasing of Marx's thesis that essentially suggests that if we're constantly exploiting new areas and having to deepen our exploitation of old ones, then by definition, labor cannot possess the means to get ahead. To maintain profits, labor must be constantly beaten back and sacrificed, thus widening the gap between classes. Ultimately, Marx wasn't agitating for a revolution as much as he was predicting one, one where the working class would rise in unison having been united by the global and commercial trade mechanisms ironically developed by the bourgeoisie to expand their exploitative reach. This would culminate in a workers' revolt that swelled beyond nationalism and placed the means of production into the hands of those who produced. So, putting this into political theory, Marx stated clearly, quote, The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few, end quote. So he concludes with a very simple line that summarizes the manifesto and is, I guess in his terms, the definition of communism. Quote, In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. End quote. Huh. So, this simple but extremely radical idea is anathema to almost everyone living today. But it's important to remember that property in this sense means those fixtures of economic production that produce capital on the back of labor. Machines, factories, equipment, buildings, bridges, roads, railways, the means of production. That's the property he reasoned would someday return to those who labor rather than those who profit. In proving his logic, he turns capitalist convention on its head. See, we're conditioned to believe that private property is the foundation of everything. Banks loan to people because they have capital or collateral. You can build wealth by leveraging equipment and resources. You have to have capital and private ownership of its means to function properly. But Marx simply turns this around and says, quote, In your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. End quote. So what he's basically saying is, how important is it really if 90% of the population already doesn't own the means of production? It must not be entirely necessary for production to occur. So Marx wasn't giving anything away to 90% of the people. He was just taking it from 10. He goes on to introduce all of the potential arguments to his thesis that labor should own the means of production and masterfully dismantles each of them. Although, of course, it's just in a theoretical context. He concludes with the core tenets of the communist agenda that include rational arguments 
more recognizable today. Progressive taxation, the benefits of free education, centralizing communication and transportation, centralizing credit and capital, eliminating inherited wealth, and the abolition of land ownership for private rents, essentially demonetizing housing away from landlords. Again, I'm not arguing the merits of any or all of these. The point is to cool the inflammatory rhetoric that surrounds any discussion of Marx. Now, I'm going to say something here that might seem strange, contradictory, perhaps even controversial, but I don't believe there's such a thing as Marxism. Marx was a man, a philosopher. He literally studied and taught philosophy. He became an economist who influenced social and behavioral sciences as much as Darwin, Freud, or Nietzsche. And his theories were not ideological in nature, which is why I don't believe there can be such thing as Marxism as an ideology. See, Marx believed in the natural path of capitalism to socialism to a state of communism, a state that he leaves rather undefined as he knew that this future state would be influenced by the natural resources, technology, and evolution of human behavior. But to the extent that communism was an evolved form of socialism, academia has been able to theorize what this state would look like within the loose framework that he provided. To further this point, Marx believed that ideology itself was actually a function of class. Therefore, in a state and society in which class no longer exists, then neither can ideology. Schumpeter refers to Marxism as more of a religion than an ideology or doctrine, and I think that's accurate in that it's something that's posthumously thrust upon the man who himself was continuing to learn, adapt, and evolve until the very end of his life. In fact, I would argue that little of Marx's ideas of economic, political, and social systems was doctrinal. Remember, he was a philosopher first and foremost, so the doctrinal elements we typically associate with Marxism today are just observations of existing systems and conditions and a philosopher's prognostications of what must ultimately and logically come next. So if you've never read it, or if it's been a while, it really is worth revisiting the Communist Manifesto. It remains a brilliant work of theoretical rhetoric, but it's far from the only work that sets Marx apart from the other great thinkers. Das Kapital and other works place him among the all-time greats in terms of economic thinking, political science, and sociology. He saw the beauty and the benefits of a capitalist system that could produce outputs beyond our wildest imaginations. But he believed that they would necessarily create conditions of inequality that would foster revolution and necessarily lead to a socialist state guided by the political structure of communism. In a way, we're working backwards from communism to socialism and then to capitalism. This is the reverse progression that Marx believed in, and it's amazing that we're still talking about it more than 170 years later. This elusive endgame of communism was wholly theoretical, and the world has yet to see it in action. Communism is a social, economic, and political order whereby the people are in complete control of all societal levers. In this sense, it's somewhat better described as utopian socialism. The state would control all aspects of economic activity, but only as a mechanism to evenly and fairly distribute the outputs, education, food, capital, shelter, and so on. A state that is controlled by the people, not an authoritarian and controlling regime. So the state can serve as the central authority, but not be authoritarian. Communism in the strictest terms is actually kind of fantastical in my opinion. It's a lot like my criticisms of Uncle Dick Noggin and his devotion to the idea of a free market. 
Both of these concepts require the suspension of disbelief because they fail to incorporate the natural tendencies of greed. Greed for money, greed for power, greed for hoarding and subjugation. I believe these to be natural instincts of humankind rather than byproducts of economic systems. And to prove this, I present <clears throat> all of fucking human history. What is more realistic and easy to wrap our heads around is socialism. So let's talk socialism, shall we? By now, I'm sure you're a little tired of hearing me drone on. Mm, do you think? So I'm going to grab a refill and take a leak while I let dear Uncle Gnome handle shit for a minute. Now, as far as socialism is concerned, that term has been so uh, evacuated of content over the last century that it's hard even to use. I mean, the Soviet Union, for example, was called a socialist society. And it was called that by the two major propaganda operations in the world, uh, the US, the Western one, and the Soviet one. They both called it socialism for opposite reasons. Uh, the West called it socialism in order to defame socialism by associating it with this uh, miserable tyranny. The Soviet Union called it socialism in order to gain whatever, to, to benefit from the moral appeal that true socialism had among uh, large parts of the general world population. But this was about as remote from socialism as you can imagine. All right, here we go. All right. Hey, Manny, uh, we back? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're all set. Did you wash your hands? I'm not an animal, 99. Jesus. Okay, so socialism, Chomsky, oh yeah, okay. So Uncle Gnome is preaching here. Our understanding of socialism today was cultivated in propaganda campaigns throughout the Cold War. Remember that in the first half of the 20th century, figures like Eugene Debs were serious political candidates for social progress, and leading intellectual figures like John Dewey, Walter Lippmann, Rosa Luxemburg, and John Keynes were debating the merits of a just society. Rosa being the resident badass motherfucker of this grouping. The New Deal era reforms and the encroaching success of these intellectual discussions were creating a backlash among the moneyed elite in America who sought to demonize socialism, a propaganda campaign that initiated the Cold War a term coined by Lippmann, in fact, would later be weaponized through several conflicts around the globe. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the Soviets were hard at work trying to define their totalitarian empire as a socialist state, which merits a quick reflection as we move to the definition of socialism. When the next generation of revolutionary figures such as Trotsky and Lenin picked up the banner from Karl Marx and attempted to convert his philosophical doctrine into a functioning and revolutionary system, it was thought that this was the vehicle by which true socialism would be delivered in the vision Marx intended. It may have earnestly begun as such, but Russia was not Germany, and Lenin and Trotsky were not Marx and Engels. At the turn of the 20th century, when the Bolsheviks were agitating, it was mostly from afar. From the relative safety of Germany and sometimes France, Marx's self-styled successors would launch propaganda campaigns to stoke the flames of discontent among the working class in all countries. Their vision was to ignite a revolution among the peasantry of Russia first, to seed a revolution that would spread throughout Europe and hopefully the world. It should be noted that Russia wasn't considered the ideal breeding ground for communism by Marx or Lenin and Trotsky because it had yet to graduate from feudalism to capitalism. 
it was Germany that was thought to be a far better experiment because it had adopted a market economy and was tending towards socialist reforms during their time. But the bourgeois resistance was too entrenched in Germany and other parts of Europe and therefore less susceptible to their revolutionary ideas. Lenin was a right-wing deviation of the socialist movement and he was so regarded. He was regarded as that by the Marxists, by the mainstream Marxists. We've forgotten who the mainstream Marxists were because they lost. And you only remember the guys who won. Like most revolutionaries who stoked the flames of discontent and overthrow government, Lenin found it convenient and necessary, I suppose, to put his foot on the neck of the proletariat he so loved. You know, for their sake. Even Trotsky would have a violent turn as a revolutionary and was ultimately expelled by the even more violent Lenin, who was succeeded by the even more violent uber-asshole Stalin. Lenin's firm hand would lay the groundwork for Stalinism, one of the most horrific and brutal regimes that ever existed. Gradually, the government of Lenin and then of Stalin moved further away from anything that resembled the ideas of Marx and Engels, except in the way they romanticized their rule and sold it to the world. On the surface, there appeared to be certain core tenets of Marxist philosophy in the way that Lenin approached Russia's revolutionary renaissance. State control, equitable distribution of goods, and so on, but none of it was natural. There was no evolution, no plan, just total authoritarian centralization of power and means, leaving the people with little more than meager possessions. The people controlled nothing. But because we were so successful in painting Russia as a socialist state, and the Russian communists were equally successful in the same idea, but for different reasons, we came to equate the Soviet experience with the deliberate socialist outcome. Which is why conservative media can rinse, wash, and repeat the same stupid and vulgar messages about socialism over and over and over again. Virtually everywhere socialism or communism has been tried. It has produced suffering, corruption, and decay. Being even partially reliant on government in perpetuity, on handouts in general, is bad for the human spirit. It just is. We are not meant to live like dogs, waiting for our overlords to feed us every day. Did Scandinavia defeat the Nazis? Put a man on the moon? Create the iPhone? No. That was America. What are the major contributions to humankind from Scandinavia? Ikea? If you look at what's in it, this is what? Billions for AOC's Green Army. Billions to rig elections and to buy votes. Billions of freebies, you know, free babysitters, free lunches, freebies for illegals. Given that the top site read by millennials is BuzzFeed, no wonder they think Pol Pot is inedible. So if communism is a state where the people literally control everything from government to education to resources and capital, then what is socialism? And why did Marx consider it the bridge between capitalism and communism? Socialism honestly has dozens of definitions and scores more interpretations, perhaps even more than that. The basic concept is the elimination of private property. Again, not your house, the means of production, the centralization of economic interests. But without the incentive to generate wealth, what stands in for a market force in a socialist economy? It's a good question. Essentially, there has to be a central authority of sorts that is the arbiter of production with respect to quantity and distribution. Take away the cultish aspects of the Castro regime as an example, and you have a small window in what this could look like. You can own a home, have a job, hustle with two jobs if you want to make more. You can be part of the decision-making process in the machine that strives to innovate and grow, to meet demand and even compete. But what you can't do is reap a benefit that outweighs your personal contribution to the output. In the United States, senior citizens have Medicare and Social Security payments. They might live in subsidized housing. 
Many of us have access to public sewage treatment plants, public water systems, bridges, tunnels, roads, highways, public school, the postal service. You know, the stuff that works. But as you've heard in the mashup clips from Fox, the conservative class believes that the real good stuff, like landing a man on the moon or the iPhone, are products of capitalism, while the only thing other countries can produce is something like IKEA. Of course, this is intellectually bankrupt. Telephony was funded by the government, and the spectrum that it rides on, managed by the government. The internet, created by the government. The government landed a man on the moon because it fucking wanted to. Even the great Tesla was seeded with government money, the cars themselves drive on government roads, and the emission standard incentives were crafted by the government. The government is, in all of these cases, the central authority that socialism speaks of. Whoa. Manny? Manny, you okay? Yeah, no, no, government, socialism. <clears throat> yeah, I just I just fell asleep for a second. It's, uh, just keep, keep going. Oh, okay. Well, welcome back. Uh, 99, where was I? We don't have capitalism. Fox News is intellectually bankrupt. Socialism, something, something, Marx. Oh, right. Okay. So promoters of capitalism, or at least what they believe to be capitalism, think that innovation can only be fostered by the quest for money and profits. That's just never been the case. Money and profits may amplify the capital flow into these innovations, but they rarely reflect the genesis of an idea. And the fact that Marx himself stated that a progressive tax was an essential element of communism means that private accumulation of capital isn't excluded from the equation. It implies that it's very much a part of the economic engine. You're just not allowed to keep all of the excess capital that is periodically generated due to market conditions. Conditions that, once again, rely on a centralized authority to guide the direction of production and distribution of goods and services to each according to their needs. Excess capital is a condition of all economic activity, just as there are periods of deficit. It's how these periods impact the individual as part of a society that matters. If eliminating billionaires means that everyone is educated and fed, then there's all you really need to know about the meaning of socialism. And to close the loop on our capitalism episode, as we pointed out then, closer reading of Adam Smith reveals some irrefutable similarities between capitalism and socialism. Remember, Adam Smith believed that a free market economy can only function within a properly regulated market and that the excesses of production should be delivered back into the system to provide welfare and education, to fund the arts and sciences, minimize inequality, and prevent suffering. The difference is that his theory relies exclusively on private property and the concept of capital accumulation through monetary incentives to produce these outputs, whereas Marx believed that these outputs themselves are the incentives. Schumpeter lands in an interesting place when talking about capitalism as a precursor to socialism. Quote, the thesis I shall endeavor to establish is that the actual and prospective performance of the capitalist system is such as to negative the idea of its breaking down under the weight of economic failure but that its very success undermines the social institutions which protect it and inevitably creates conditions in which it will not be able to live and which strongly point to socialism as the heir apparent. End quote. I think this encapsulates my bias towards Schumpeter. See, like Marx, he believed that capitalism is a successful economic model in terms of production and gains, but where Marx believed that it would collapse as a system, which would lead to a revolt, Schumpeter posits that capitalism doesn't collapse. It consumes. It consumes resources and capital and uses them to purchase influence that then weakens and consumes the very structures that made it successful. 
That's what we're seeing right now. Every bridge that collapses, every child left homeless and hungry, every billionaire that's created, every tax loophole, every regulation or protection that is destroyed in the name of profit will eventually lead to a circumstance where the mother economy is unable to support the structure that gave birth to innovation. The laborer who toils for less and less will be unable to consume the very product or service they produce. The haves will have taken all from the have-nots until there's nothing left to have. So, one common thread from Smith to Marx, as our main protagonists here, is that both believed that a central authority was necessary to maintain an economic equilibrium and that excess capital should be sent back through the system. Both were of the belief that an ideal economic system was one that cared for the people. So in this way, their measurements of failure and success were the same. They just took different paths to get there. So when you're asked about a particular ism, are you a socialist? Do you like capitalism? Why don't you like capitalism? Are you some sort of Marxist? Clearly rehashing everything that we went through today is impractical, especially considering we left so much on the table. So here's how I think we can talk about it. With the exception of fascism, which is a power grab of bloodlust, capitalists, socialists, Marxists, democratic socialists, pretty much everyone has more in common than not. First, each of the great theorists associated with these isms did so with the best available information. Smith had only an agrarian lens through which to view the world. Marx saw the ugliness and the rise of industrialism as it related to the subjugation of the working class, and so on and so on. Each would continue to learn and evolve until the end. Just as John Maynard Keynes viewed the world differently in the span of just the two great wars. And every single theorist in history, even Uncle Fucknipple, believed that their theories were designed to produce an outcome that benefited all. Adam Smith believed capitalism in its purest form would produce an excess of capital that should be used to support the arts and sciences, provide education, and take care of the poorest. Marx simply believed that the people themselves were capable of producing that which provided the excess a shorter path to the same outcome. Milton Friedman believed that the free market was rational and inherently good, and that it too was capable of delivering positive outcomes to all. But the one thing that they all possessed was the belief that human progress was inevitable. In the end, each great philosopher and economist throughout history was attempting to harness the power and potential of progress in a way that provided the greatest benefit to the largest number of people. That's why I don't believe in a so-called progressive party or even in the concept of progressivism, but I do believe in progress and therefore identify as a progressive. Progress, by definition, means that we're moving forward, we're improving. This in and of itself should free us from the shackles of Smith and Marx and allow us to think bigger with the available resources, information, and data at our disposal. Those things that they could not possess in their times. Imagine if our elected leaders shared the same desire to serve humanity through the excesses of production, refused to be boxed in by isms of the past, and merely argued about the best path forward, then maybe none of these isms would really matter to anyone. Because the real lesson here is they don't. You are more than an ism. Noam Chomsky is the goat. Leonard will play us out. Here endeth the lesson. I'm sentimental if you don't know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. And I'm neither left or right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost.
still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming to the USA. Hey there, welcome to Show Notes. For book love this week, as you heard, we have The Communist Manifesto by a guy named Karl Marx. Uh, The copy that I have includes the 18th premiere of Louis Bonaparte and a couple of other selected essays. You should maybe have a copy of Das Kapital and The Wealth of Nations from Adam Smith in your library as well if you're interested in this shit. If you're still here after that episode and I'm not entirely confident that anyone is. But if you dig this stuff, check out those books. And of course, there's Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy by Joseph Schumpeter, which, like I said, it's really a lot to get through, but it's amazing. It's an amazing book, and it's certainly more timely and relevant is that it's only 70 years old as opposed to 170 years old. And uh, the only pod love I have for this week is Pitchfork Economics. They have some brilliant guests on. They have a really good banter and relationship on the show, so that's all I got. And I would like to formally welcome my friend and, and co-conspirator, 99, to show notes. 99, how the fuck are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm, ex- I'm exhausted. Yeah. I'm exhausted. I don't even know how this how this one worked out. I, I was approaching it like the capitalism one. I thought it was going to be like a little lighter, a little woohoo. But I just, uh, I guess there's nothing light about Marx. No. <laughs> Inherently. <laughs> You think anybody's still with us right now? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of our fuckers will love this because they're a bunch of smart motherfuckers. They are smart motherfuckers. Well, we had a couple pieces of feedback on the question that we put out there about doing some interviews. It was kind of split. It was like in the middle. One sentiment was, yeah, yeah, just don't fuck up the show. Don't stop doing what you're doing, right? And then others were like, yeah, just make them great. That'd be great. What do you think? I mean, I can't imagine them fucking up the show in any way we wouldn't we wouldn't make it the main show it would be right. bonus free bonus content and i can't see any downside to that hearing from great people like nick from pitchfork economics or an interview with jay yeah maybe um maybe david too you know david has an economics degree when he leans into economics he's really fucking good yeah or what about oh jesse would be great all our friends yeah oh so um unfuckers really took care of us once again we have a couple new members. First of all, we have Leslie, who became a member, said, awesome show, learned so much, supports my sanity in a crazy world. Welcome to the unfucking universe, Leslie. Thank you for supporting the show. We have uh, Mikel B, or it might be Michael B. Yeah, we'll see which one we went up with up top. That's right. MB. MB said, love the show, everything about it. Keep up the good work. And since you're looking at history at times, might I recommend Blowback? Yes, we actually covered that before. Blowback is fucking awesome. This second season is really outstanding. It's the one that they did on the Cuban Revolution. So anyway, Michael or Mikel, great having you aboard. Thank you for being a member. Rhonda K also became a member. Yes. Thank you, Rhonda K. Good to hear from you. Said happy anniversary to my favorite political podcast. By the way, I totally agree about Bill Maher, but you forgot to mention that he's a fat phobic fuck. <laughs> Look forward to the coming years. Doug V became a member. Eye-opening, enraging, engaging, entertaining. It's a lot of E alliteration there. I love it, Doug. A real fait accompli. 
Manny, 99, and Max are the real deal. Enjoy the coffee. Fuck Milton Friedman and fuck Joe Manchin. Indeed. Trick from up north. Tricushin. Tricushin bought us four coffees. I was so chuffed to hear myself on your show. Started tearing up while driving last week. When can we get our coffee in Canada? I know. I'm sorry. Fuck Woodrow Wilson. Love you guys. And fuck Tucker Carlson. Him and Jenny McCarthy have blood on their hands. Yes, they do. Thank you, Trick. IMGT bought us a couple of coffees and said, uh, oh, and recommended that we check out Drilled. I've been meaning to do that because 99 actually mentioned that to me a few weeks ago. So yeah, dig it. We'll check it out. And Flair bought us a coffee. Said, oh, okay. So Flair bought a coffee. He said, uh, hey, Max, this is how polite on fuckers are, <laughs> right? Hey, Max, I fucking love you guys. But if I have to hear you mispronounce Oregon as Oregon one more time, my head will explode. It's pronounced Oregon. <laughs> Sincerely yours. Flair from Oregon. I am not going to do that. It's not that I don't want to, Flair. Uh, this <laughs> my my New York accent uh, just it lands on a couple of things and it's just never going to change. Yeah, I also struggle with. I basically say Oregon. Oregon. It just comes out like Oregon. I'd say Oregon. Or- Oregon. Or- Oregon. If Flair wants us to say or Oregon. Or- Oregon. Oregon. My mouth doesn't even go that yeah, way. Yeah, mine either. It's like when, like coffee. Well, that, I say right? coffee. You say coffee, I say coffee. Yeah. And I try to just like meet that in the middle. Oregon. Is Ar- that, did I do it? Or am I doing it the other way? <laughs> do it again. Oregon? Or- I can't. No, is it gun? Oregon. Ar- Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> Silly. Flair. Sorry. Thanks for the coffee at a, at a minimum. Sorry if we're going to continue to butcher your state. On Facebook, Kyle C. said, as always, great episode. Consider myself progressive and exciting seeing the progressive movement growing every year. Hey, 99, what's happening over on the Twitters? <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter, G. Khaleesi, Wild-Eyed Bob, Midwest Monster, and Eating Waste all shared the pot out this week. So thank you for spreading UNFTR gospel as always. So we got a few emails. Let's see. Oh, hey, Mike P., welcome back. Mike P. actually checked out for a little while to focus on mental health, which we've talked about before in the show when you're going too far down the rabbit hole. Unplug the pod. Go listen to some happy shit. Watch Ted Lasso. Do whatever you got to do to fucking check out. It's all good. But Mike P. came back. wanted to suggest that maybe we actually take a look at the history of mental health in this country. How it's either been straight up dismissed, heavily overlooked, even in many progressive circles and healthcare bills and arguments. I would love that. I think that's a great topic. There's definitely some Reagan fucking to be done there. I think he was responsible for a lot of closing of mental health facilities, right? Yeah, and and I can't wait to learn about that because one of the the dicier parts of that is that a lot of those facilities were so poorly run with old methodologies and and like dangerous. Yeah. Some pod love kind of adjacent to this for Mike P. If you're interested in this, American Scandal from Wondery. They did a mini series on the history of the lobotomy. Oh wow! So that's obviously a treatment that uh, I mean, but it was basically just about how the lobotomy started, how the creator of it didn't want to stop. It definitely covers the early, earlier than Reagan, obviously, but it covers some stuff there. So you might find that interesting. I love this topic and I'm going to I'm going to push for it because I like it a lot. Well, if you're going to push for it, it's going to happen because mm-hmm. I'm terrified of you. Thank you. Good. Joshua G said, Dear Max and Co., love how you use fact to set the record with Uncle Fucknuts. But hey, 
What about a fuck Henry Kissinger episode? If anyone deserves to have the UNFTR truth laser shot at him, it's him. Oh man, you ain't kidding. I am, you know, I, you know, you hear me kind of think out loud about all the different things that I'm reading each week, trying to pull my head together. But I've, I've got Kissinger in my sights, but for some reason, I also have it in my head that I need to know more about the Dulles brothers. Trying to understand more because I feel like Kissinger was a product of the Cold War and, you know, used that mentality to, you know, really help define neoliberalism in the Nixon era and certainly has been influential, you know, ever since that time. So I'm sort of doing a little pre-Kissinger work in order to get to him, but I couldn't agree with you more that Kissinger probably one of the most dangerous figures in modern history. And, I mean, truly a war criminal. And so. he's still alive. Still fucking alive. Insane. You know, what's so funny about like looking back at historical photos is like you look even like right now, I look at a picture of Kissinger in the 70s. I'm like, that's a that fucker's old. <laughs> and he's like, what is he, a thousand now? I think he's like in his late, late 90s. He's in his pre hundreds. Well, you know, the devil can live forever, right? I mean, that's that it's the devil. Maybe he's the devil. Hmm. Hmm. James Q found you on fuckers a few weeks ago from, of course, Pitchfork Economics. I love it. Uh, where the host Goldie mentioned your show in particular, the FMF episode, Freeman episode, was my first unfucking and it was glorious. Recently finished the AOC quickie, that intellectually bankrupt troglodyte Jimmy Dore has been attacking her since last year. It's funny, but three of the four you mentioned all work or have worked at RT, Camp, Hedges, and Door. Hmm. Yeah. So James Q is is really hitting on something that 99 and I are extremely, we were just talking about it, off microphone before what's happening in progressive circles and, and all of these, uh, you know, progressive pundits that are, they're tearing us apart. And you had a few choice words about... Um, I won't just name how names. They're, how they're going about yeah, it, Yeah, right? it's just I mean, toxic infighting, and it's not helping anybody, and it just sucks all the air out of the movement, and it, it decredits just, like, people in the alt-right fight, and it makes them look silly. It makes us look silly, because we should be more unified, and it's what you called attention to, I believe it was... Was it last week? No, I think it was in our anniversary episode where, yeah, you, I think so. where you said that Democrats eat their young, but it's happening with the progressives now, and it's something to watch for. And it's, yeah, it's a shit it show. It sucks, you yeah. know? And there's, I don't know what stops it. Love. Aw. Love 99. I can try. Okay. <laughs> Allison from Boulder said, I completely forgot to respond in the last time. In addition to being Islamophobic, Bill Maher is also a misogynist. Allison says, FMF, FRR, and I'll throw in a fuck Bill Maher too. Dig that, Allison. No? <laughs> no, I was going <laughs> to, I'm on um, a Reddit, there's a subreddit called Instagram Reality. And it's people who overly filter their face. <laughs> but it was a photo of Bill Maher where it's like full fucking filter. Like, I mean, he wasn't like wearing eyeliner or anything, but no wrinkles, nothing. Beautiful Just man. his platypus oh, face. <laughs> but it was made me laugh to see him pop up on that subreddit. And I thought of you. So David B said, uh, finally heard someone recognize Ayn Rand for the author. She truly is. Would have thought she was one we grew out of. Guess not. The silent aeronaut. Love the show. Learning so much and have had many conversations on the importance of language with my partner. Yay. Love that. Over on Substack, my unknucker buddy, Doug, corrected me on something. I fucked something up in last week's episode. I'll give you uh, Doug's words here. He has it right. In the wrap-up, you said, true, we don't have a parliamentary system that relies on building allegiances to elect a leader, such as in Canada or what we're witnessing in Germany at the moment. But in terms of the legislative process, I believe he's dead right. It was a conversation that I was having uh, with Jay from Best of the Left, and then I 
further the idea that the parliamentary system elects a leader. Doug corrected me and said, Canada's parliamentary process does not rely upon allegiances to elect a leader. We have a first-past-the-post system. Whichever party holds the most seats at the end of the election holds the leadership. And the leader of that party is the prime minister. So if that party fails to hold enough seats for a majority, currently 170, they will hold a minority government. In that case, they may need to develop alliances with other parties to pass the bills they wish to pass, but not necessarily. So there you go, your Uncanuckin' fan, Doug. And thank you, Doug, for setting me straight on that. I appreciate that. That's why, God damn, I love this community. And we had one review to close things out. Lanarkey said, I love this podcast, has me laughing out loud, crying, and everything in between. Max has a way with words that leaves me in awe. If I had one criticism, it would be that one episode a week is just not enough. I want more. Thank you, 99. Manny and Max keep up the amazing work. Alana from England. Thank you, Alana. You're a Euro fucker. We love you guys over there. And, um, well, that's it, I think. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. I'm thinking. See, here we are again. I'm you know, thinking. every week it's going to, yeah, you didn't do it that one week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit tommcgovern.com. Our show is hosted by Freddie Angles and distributed by Leaflets. Send us your comments, your questions, your tired, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop and read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. Remember, we'll never charge for content. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Many Faces Media. Can I, can I just take this time to... Tell you how much I admire 99, how how awesome she is and how much value she brings to this show. You know, she's just a good person. And I I, uh, I don't think she would ever say anything, you know, awkwardly mean for no reason. She's not the type of person she is. You rock, 99. Have a great week, 99. You too, Max. And you too, our beloved unfuckers. And to Manny. Bye, Manny. Eh. Oh, what the fuck? I just, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. You know, it's hard to. <laughs> ah, such a good workout. Anyway.